Welcome back to the Wildly Unexplained Podcast, episode number six. I'm Gary. And I'm Danny. I can't believe it's already six episodes, man. I know, man. It's kind of crazy. Time is really flying, you know, and, and uh, you know, we, we've had some humbling support, you know, from the listeners and everything like that. We actually surpassed 2,100 listens uh, on all five episodes, cumulatively, of course. But thank right. you guys so much for that support. Yeah, that is awesome. Man. We definitely didn't expect that. You know, the reviews we're getting, you guys definitely seem to be enjoying it, you know, and we enjoy doing them. But, you know, needless to say, we've got two pretty good, two pretty interesting cases for you. The first one we wanted to cover was Carl Landers. And a lot of people might have heard about this case already. It's, it's one of the more popular missing 401 cases. Yeah, and uh, it, it's, it's certainly one of the ones that's, I know that we cover a lot of really, you know, intriguing and, and just kind of weird cases, but this one is extremely baffling. Yeah. Um, you know, so without further ado, let's kind of hop right in there because I'm, I'm getting really fired up just kind of, you know, thinking about this. Uh, so Carl Landers, you know, he's 69 years old. Uh, he hails from Orinda, California, disappeared on May 25th, 1999 on Mount Shasta, which is north of Sacramento, California. So, this trip that Mr. Landers is taking, he's accompanied by two friends, Milton, age 64, Barry, age 60. All three of them actually met through a local running club. You know, so, I want to kind of stop, you know, hit a real pause right there. You know, they met through a running club. They're all very, very active. Yeah, and I believe uh, Carl himself has ran marathons and he ran every day for most of his life so he's a pretty in shape guy even though he was advanced at age 69 years old yeah i mean i think it's safe to say that the 69 year old would run circles around me um <laughs> oh yeah he, he definitely had better endurance than, than i've ever had oh yeah yeah so i mean just kind of goes to show you that you know this guy had you know he's he's athletic you know he he has the endurance he, he was a marathon runner everything to that kind of nature um, you know, so it's not like he's, you know, unequipped, you know, athletically for the for this venture. No, and I mean, as I recall, Carl's friends and colleagues, you know, they described him as an experienced climber, a hiker, and a distance runner in good shape. Right, uh, apparently, right. for thirty years, every morning he ran, and he also uh, completed the Boston Marathon. Wow, which is pretty impressive. That that is actually really impressive. That's yeah. very impressive. So to kind of set the uh, set the imagery here, Mount Shasta, or what people like to call it as White Mountain, is a potentially active volcano. It's at the southern end of the Cascade Range in Siskiyou County, California. The elevation there is about 14,000 feet and is the fifth highest peak in California. So the mountain and the surrounding areas are part of the Shasta Trinity National Forest, which again, you know, one of those key, you know, points there being a national forest. Yes. Uh, so there it actually averages 59 inches of snow per year, which nearly doubles what the U.S. average is of 28 inches. That's insane. Yeah, it, it snows a lot uh, up here in the mountains. and. You know, as you said earlier in the early episodes, when when you're up in the mountains, you know the the weather kind of just changes and picks up. And here on Mount Shasta, it's it's pretty grueling, and even considering the amount of snow they get every year. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, just to kind of, you know, give some, some, I guess, firsthand encounter, you know, I was actually up at Rocky Mountain State uh, National Park today, uh, you know, taking some pictures and it was snowing. It stopped and it snowed again. Then the sun came out. So, I mean, you know, it, it just kind of goes to show like, like these weather cycles, I mean, are just insane. Yeah. You said it was extremely windy out there, wasn't it? It was very windy. And, you know, granted, you know, we were out there, you know, my, my girlfriend and I were out there in, you know, a uh, sweater and a t-shirt, you know, for myself and a, a sweater and, and basically a t-shirt for her as well. And it was bone chilling. I mean, it was, it was yeah. probably about 33 degrees, you know, give or take. So not terribly cold, but I mean, you know, still, still pretty cold. But with the wind chill, it was excruciatingly cold. Yeah, and I bet with the elevation, you know, it just makes it worse. Yeah, because Rocky Mountain is about 10,000, maybe, you know, 10 to something like that, you know, elevation-wise. But, you know, that that to me was just kind of like a holy crap, you know. Some of these guys who, you know, who go missing in, in this inclement weather and everything like that, you don't really think about, you know, the, the weather conditions that they, you know, have to brave or have to go through. You know, until you actually are out there and you're like, holy shit, like, this is really cold. Yeah, and granted, they have sense. jackets and everything like that on, and we only had sweaters on. But still, like, you know, even in, even wearing a jacket, I mean, if you've ever gone skiing before, you know, it sometimes gets cold. Yeah, and I mean, considering Mount Shasta is 14,000 feet tall, roughly, you know, that the elevation, the air gets thinner. You know, there's, there's some issues that go on with not only the, the temperature and the atmospheric events and the snow, but, you know, typically a person in good physical condition, they can make the climb all the way up to Mount Shasta mm -hmm. in a day, but that's permitting good weather and good snow conditions. Right. However... Right. Most climbers, they typically plan a two-day trip, you know, to maximize the chances of, of making the peak. So Which they'll makes go, sense. yeah, it makes sense. So like they'll go up part way and they'll spend the night to accustom themselves to the elevation, you know, get their body used to the elevation. And in Mount Shasta, there's actually a place where most climbers camp. It's called 50/50 Camp, or Lake Helen, which is slightly above it. I mean, if you also if you're climbing above 10,000 feet. You know what you would be if you attempt Mount Shasta then you know you need to acclimate yourself to the elevation sure which which makes a whole lot of sense and especially for those folks who have actually you know summited a 14er um, you know that elevation sickness can be excruciating like like that is just something that you do not want to mess with um, so you definitely want to have your, your body acclimated to the elevation and and the weather too you know honestly yeah you definitely do so, Mount Shasta, uh, in order to, you know, in, in order to summit this place, you actually need to have a summit pass. Right. So now, the summit pass is a pretty important detail to notate. Um, Carl Landers did purchase one. So, with that being said, let's kind of move on. So, once a climber's made it to the peak of the mountain, the descent takes about four hours. Right, because you got to consider now you're you're descending, you're going downhill. And I've actually looked up Mount Shasta climbs, and you can find it on YouTube and online. Uh, typically, when they make summiting the peak, you know it's grueling. It's it's a very steep climb, but it, nonetheless, when you're going down, 
you can use the elevation the decline to kind of slide down the mountain and it makes it it, it shaves off time tremendously so once you've summited it'll take about four hours to get back down to your car right which which certainly makes sense at that point i mean because you know you've got gravity kind of doing its job yeah and going back to to carl uh a year before he disappeared he actually had attempted to climb mount shasta previously but he wasn't able to reach the summit and once he went back down he vowed to reach the peak the next time he attempted it interesting i thought that was important yeah that's very interesting so the initial uh you know thought process of this journey so the group of men planned to actually start from Bunnyhead flat or i'm sorry bunny flat trailhead uh which is a distance to the summit of mount shasta which was about six miles so from bunny flat to lake helen so that was where you know the, the basically the halfway mark where they're going to make camp the elevation was 10,443 feet and a distance of 3.5 miles which took a, you know roughly three to four hours to you know make that ascent. From Lake Helen, it's a three to six hour climb to the summit. Uh, you know, so it's 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 considerably longer. You know, from there, from the halfway mark to the summit. Now that's all. That's obviously weather permitting, and you know, you know, if if you've got good weather, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, doing you guys justice, and you you can actually make that ascent. It's going to take three to six hours. You know, six right. hours being on the more hairy side, you know, give or take. Yeah, and considering the skill level of the climber, you know, it's very steep. And your fitness level will determine that the wind that day, the weather, obviously, as we've covered earlier. Right, right. So after at that point of the game, you summit. It's, it's then two to three hours back to Lake Helen and then two hours with a backpack down to the trailhead. So overall, mm -hmm. it seems on paper to be a pretty simple hike yeah. slash slash climb i should say because it's not just a hike it's grueling but it, you know it's it's pretty hard to get lost up there once you get started on this hike right you know, it's just a grueling ascent absolutely so monday the 23rd they leave the motel they're staying at around 4 a.m so now i want to kind of get into the gear so these guys are equipped with ice axes crampons climbing clothing i mean they are they're experienced. They know what they're doing as far as, you know, climbing and summiting these peaks. Right. So, and going back to the gear, I personally didn't know. So crampons, uh, they're actually spikes that, you know, they clip onto your boots. So yes. I didn't know. I didn't know that before. Hey, the more uh, you know. In, yeah. Yeah. The more you know. But yeah, exactly. So they actually, they're spikes that allow you to, you know, to get grip in ice. Right. So it's important to note that. Yes. Yes. So they, they had all of that. Right. Right. So at this point of the game, they leave for the trailhead at Bunny Flat. Um, you know, so now this area was covered in, in deep snow drifts. You know, so even in May, which you know, if if any of y'all have have ever hiked, you know, or you know, a, a very high mountain, you know, fourteen or something to that kind of nature, there's typically always snow. <laughs> like you can you right. can typically always find snow at least you know somewhere close. Um, you know, just a quick aside, you know, I, I did uh, St. Mary's Glacier, you know, last year in July, and there was still snow. That's, so, that's crazy. Yeah, and that's I'm in a 14er. So, you know, that just kind of goes to show you that at an elevation of above 14,000 feet, I mean, you're going to find snow. Mm -hmm. So getting back on track here. So they hiked four miles from Bunny Trail, Bunny Flat area, to a place called horse camp so 
They then reach a location on the mountain called 5050 Plateau, which is right below Lake Helen. So that's the camping spot that, that most hikers usually, you know, climb to, make camp, you know, set up, acclimate themselves, kind of get, you know, recoup their energy and everything like that before they make that summit. Right. So at this point of the game, they were, they were just, they built up their camp. They are kind of, you know, setting it up and everything like that. Now, I want to go back to a previous point that we made, you know, altitude sickness. So here's the part of the story where, you know, it, it kind of makes you kind of think a little bit, you know, kind of gets the gears turning. So Carl's health actually might have been a contributing factor to his disappearance. Now, Carl was taking a drug, which was called Diamox, to combat the effects of altitude sickness. So he was clearly, he clearly had altitude sickness, was, you know, obviously knew about it, was trying to combat it. So yes. from the altitude sickness, he was suffering from diarrhea and had to leave the tent several times during the night to relieve himself, which actually exposed him to very, very strong cold winds and a lot more elements. Yeah. So the next morning, he was still complaining of feeling unwell, but he decided to leave 5050 location without his friends to get a head start up towards Lake Helen as he was feeling cold. Yeah, and this part, no. Once again, all these cases that we covered, when, when these people decide to go off on themselves, it's typically not a good idea, especially considering Carl was suffering from altitude sickness, and you know he had exposed himself to the elements all night. He decided to leave because he didn't want to slow down his friends, so he thought he could get a head start up the mountain. So the last time. So Lake Helen is actually a short distance from 5050 camp. It's about 650 feet. Mm -hmm. It's it's around the side of the mountain from the campsite at just a slightly higher elevation. And when Carl left, he was he was wearing two to three layers of clothing, including a rust-colored coat, ski pants, his boots with the crampons. You know, and his buddies Milton Berry saw Carl disappear around the curve of the mountain. And that's the last time he was ever seen. That's crazy. So after this, his friends pack up and leave camp around 30 minutes after Carl. So really not long, you know. So theoretically, I mean, they really should be able to, you know, catch him if they're if they're hoofing it. So mm -hmm. they leave their gear at the camp, um, you know, because they wanted to check out Lake Helen's weather and snow conditions, then grab their stuff from you know from the campsite later. Right, because it's not that far from the camp. No, no, not at all. So after a short time, Barry returned to the tent, which you know, which they left at 50/50 camp, because he actually wasn't feeling well. So Milton got to Lake Helen on his own, and he asked a ranger if he had seen anyone passing through on the way to the mountain. Uh, the ranger had replied that he'd only seen one person. So Milton tried to catch up, but subsequently discovered he was way too fast to be Carl, wearing the wrong clothes, and he turned back and, and asked the ranger again, but to no avail. Milton headed back to 5050 camp to try to meet, meet up with Barry again, uh, hoping that Carl would be there, and that was around 5 p.m. Still no Carl. Right. But unfortunately, Carl wasn't back at the tent. You know, he, he'd vanished and he had left part of it, the kit around the campsite. So typically when the if you're making a descent back down the mountain, you know, you go to the campsite, you grab your stuff and you come down. So Carl never went back to the campsite to get the rest of his gear. So, you know, you would think he was still trying to summit the mountain. Right. But, you know, Mill actually decided to hike back to Bunny Flats, the beginning of the trail, around 8 p.m. 
to notify the sheriff that you know Carl had disappeared. Milt left uh, Carl's gear behind just in case he turned up at the camp, you know, while he was on the way down. Well, which honestly seems to be the, the logical thing to do in this case. I mean, so so he one he alerted the the sheriff, you know, that this guy is you know potentially disappeared, and yeah. two left his left his gear back behind just in case, you know, uh, on the on the. You know, and maybe this is maybe this is a stretch, but you know, maybe he comes back down and he's like, "Oh, great, my gear, you know, awesome." Yeah, you know, that's best case scenario. Absolutely. So at this point of the game, the county sheriff's department started searching the area the next morning. So that this is May 26. So and this is after Carl was reporting missing. So they did a they do a grid pattern. You know, they use the National Guard air ambulance helicopter and a helicopter equipped with an infrared sensing device. A ground search was subsequently conducted on ski, horse, and foot by U.S. Uh, Rangers. Shasta Mountain Guides, you know, they had some volunteers there as well uh, from Marin and San Mateo counties. They actually had uh, South Oregon, you know, Sutter, Placer, and Humboldt counties involved as well. So there were a couple, you know, members of the Arinda Roadrunners, uh, which was a club that Carl belonged to, that also joined in on the search on that Thursday. So they had a, you know, a, a pretty vast, you know, search party, you know, coming, you know, going for this guy, Carl, um, right. you know, which up until this point, no sign of this guy. No, and it's, it's pretty strange considering the amount of people that typically attempt to summit every year. Uh, it, this place is typically pretty crowded. And you would think that if Carl went up there to try to summit the peak, you know, somebody would have saw him, would have seen him. And the fact that they did the grid pattern searching and with the helicopter and so many volunteers. If you look at Lake Helen and subsequently Mount Shasta Peak, this is wide open. You know, for uh, there's like not a whole lot of nooks and crannies for somebody to hide in. If, right. If yeah, so if Carl had, you know, succumbed to altitude sickness or hypothermia or whatever it may be, you know, and he would have collapsed, he would have been pretty easy to spot just because of how open this area is. I just yeah. thought that was interesting. Yeah, and, and honestly, you know, just kind of seeing the pictures and, and just kind of, you know, get the imagery from, you know, from, you know, some of these articles and everything like that. I mean, like you said, it's wide open. I mean, you know, e even succumbing to weather or something like that. I mean, you know, it, it's you're more than likely going to find him, you know, kind of in, in the grid pattern search that they did. Right. And even like, even in the grid pattern searching. So the helicopter took professional climbers to the summit and they descended the mountain using separate routes at different points on the compass, you know, maybe try to intercept the point that he might've tried to go up. Mm -hmm. But despite this, you know, they found no sign of Carl, no sign of his body, clothing, backpack, or any other equipment. Not to mention, there were no footprints in the snow, and nothing to suggest that he was ever in the area of Mount Shasta. Yeah, which is, which is to me baffling because you know this guy goes up, but there's no trace of him. He goes up, and there's no sign of him ever going down. Right. And they weren't able to find a sign of him that he was ever there. That's just nuts. So mm -hmm. the search and rescue effort was actually headed by a guy named Grizz Adams, which is completely cliche i mean that's just like that's an awesome name that, 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 is, that is really awesome uh so he's a veteran of over 400 search and rescue operations and david Pilatus actually interviews him so he actually asked him um you know in 35 years you know this guy has never seen this happen 
Uh, he said we were all over that mountain. He was not on the mountain. We brought canines in. They did not pick him up. We flew around it. We dropped guys at the summit. They came down all sides. They could not find him. They talked to people who were on the mountain. They did not see him. There's snow around the path where he was, and nobody went outside the path. So, this to me, like, literally says, like, they have literally tried everything that they could, you know, to find this guy. Yeah, and like I mentioned before, if you look up pictures of Lake Helen on Mount Shasta, where the point where he, he vanished from, like I said, this is wide open, Gary. There's not a whole lot of places where you can, you know, hide a body. If you collapse here, if something happens here, you're gonna, you, people are gonna see you. And the fact that this area is so popular, you know, there's tons of climbers every day, all the time, but nobody right. saw Carl. Baffling. Yeah, and uh, you know, Pilatus actually asked Chris Adams what he actually thought happened to Carl Landers on the mountain. Uh, which he replied, that's the million dollar question. He either went up or in, but he's not on it. Yeah. That's, that's just super and, strange. And the guy who's headed all the search and rescue efforts, or most of them on this mountain, you know, in 35 years, he's never seen anything like that. It just it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. And it's again, it's baffling. I mean, you know, the county sheriff spokeswoman, Susan Gravankum, uh, had actually said, we've just looked everywhere that we can look, and we just don't know where else to look. So above the tree line, the mountain is not hugely steep with no crevices or steep cliffs, plenty of flat areas. It makes no sense that a man like Carl could just disappear off the mountain. I mean, you know, and, and that just kind of goes to coattail what you said earlier about the terrain. Like, it, yeah. it's... it's 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 elevated but it's it's wide open like it, it's not like it's you know this like it's not like there's like chasms and you know cliffs and and, and everything like that to you know for you know for for you to kind of fall and, and get lost into or you know anything to that kind of nature you know it is fairly open so you know if you do end up you know passing out you know succumbing to you know the the elements or whatever happens you know this is a pretty trafficked area you know there are going to be hikers over there even if a drift you know covers up your body or something like that it's gonna turn up eventually yeah like i said and if you you know if you're listening to this and you're curious enough i highly suggest to look up the topography you know look up the area the pictures of mount shasta especially the lake helen area it's wide open so i i saw that and that just kind of added another sh like shade of mystery to this already bizarre case oh but yeah nonetheless Absolutely. you know to this day you know more than 20 years later nothing's ever been found not a trace of his equipment it's assumed that carl disappeared somewhere between you know the 50 50 plateau and lake helen because no tracks were ever spotted off that trail. It was a distance of, like we said, only 650 feet from where he was camping. An area which is relatively flat with no dense brush or tree cover. And the topography around Mount Helen it makes it very difficult for someone to disappear. Obviously, there's no obvious crevices, no dense vegetation or trees where you can obscure a body. And all this entire area was thoroughly searched. You know, on, like you said, on a grid pattern basis at the base of the mountain. They brought, you know, they even brought cadaver dogs and, you know, they detected nothing. There was nowhere for him to hide and, you know, and locals familiar with the mountain were completely stumped and baffled about this case. They just couldn't understand it. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I'm right there with him, though. I mean, because, you know, again, you know, all the signs point to the guy tried to, you know, ascend, and he just vanished into thin air. You know, no tracks, no, no trace, no clothing, nothing left behind, you know, except for his gear at the camp, and no sign, you know, after that to even say that this guy was even on the mountain. Yeah, and I'm trying to put myself in, in Carl's shoes and try to understand the situation because you mentioned he was he was suffering from altitude sickness and he had diarrhea, so he, he wasn't feeling well, he was cold. And the ascent up to the peak, you know, like I said, it's a high elevation. It's a slow, grueling climb. It takes a while. So if he wasn't feeling well, I don't see him venturing away from the path and then collapsing ultimately somewhere off the beaten trail it just i just feel like the more he went up the harder it would have been for him to get uh to f uh further distance so it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me yeah and, and again I, I think that that's just going to add more to the you know the the mystique behind this case and just the overall uh you know just 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 i mean it's baffling Right. And, you know, to add even more to that, the place where he vanished, it wasn't a desolate spot. There were reported around 50 to 100 people around Lake Helen at the time that he disappeared. No one ever saw him. The only evidence that he was there at all was his abandoned backpack at, at the camp. Right. Well, and, and, to, and to further, you know, uh, you actually mentioned this earlier, but, you know, if he did succumb to hypothermia, you know, he would have left behind, you know, plenty of stuff, boots, clothing, you know, a backpack, you know, something to that kind of nature, you know, but nothing is, has been discovered in the, in the, you know, in this over 20 years that, that he's been missing. You know, if he was delirious from the medication he was taking, then he would have gotten, you know, or he wouldn't have gotten very far, you know, in the area he was walking. No, definitely not. And, you know, if he, if he did collapse or something, whatever happened, black bears coyotes they they're known to inhabit the area but they only appear at low rev, uh, elevations and like i've said you know animal predation cases are gruesome and they would have left a ton of evidence yeah and, and again i think that there would be something you know left behind at that point right and then that just you start speculating about what potentially happened because they never found him they still haven't found anything to this day you know another theory goes up that maybe the friends were lying and they brought out the bag and, and left it but the thing is that you need a permit to summit mount chasta and you're required to check in and bring an id well and, and to even further you know push that again you do need an id for that because you know i, I was just at rocky mountain national park today you know we, we you know bought a day pass had to show id you know so you do have to check in and i i Liddy validated this firsthand today, you know, so mm -hmm. w which is even better for this case because, you know, that he couldn't have been lying if, if he, you know, if he did purchase a pass, he had to have been there. Right. And then another theory that gets thrown out there is, you know, did Carl lead a double life and he wanted to vanish for whatever reason? Was there a plan to to make him disappear? Well, for one, he's 69 years old. I don't typically don't see somebody you know dropping everything and starting a new life and just even getting down the mountain without being seen and leaving no evidence that he was there that, that seems highly unlikely to me right well i i think that this case just kind of leaves a whole bunch of open you know open variables you know to, to kind of make your own speculations and theorize you know as to what happened to carl um 
but if you have any sort of information you know that we didn't cover on this case you know please send it in um you know i i know for i i can speak for us both here that we would love to to you know kind of look a little bit further into this um more so than we already have yeah because like i said it is a popular missing 401 case it's been it's been discussed many times before but it doesn't take away from the mystery of the case and, you know even mount shasta is it's a particular area because even the native americans regarded this area as, as high importance with the many stories that they tell of the area because the shasta the wintu the you know all these tribes that they, they all have territory on the mountain and they conduct many sacred ceremonies the native americans believed that the mountain was the sacred center of the universe and it's the home of the creator and the the wintu tribe traced their people's origin back to the spring area so there's a lot of stories of bizarre things happening on this mountain before yeah. and I'm, I'm sure it's not the last time we'll hear of it no i i can't even i can't imagine that it is but uh we we do hope that something comes up you know something turns up for carl um you know that leads to you know finding out what did happen to him yeah that's definitely it's, it's horrible hopefully we we get more answers in the future right so case number two uh charles mcculler so this one happened in 1974 so this guy's 19 years old so charles left his home state of virginia for an extended photography and hiking trip which is pretty common and especially nowadays um you know that's actually way more popular than people think uh, or even i think know about um i mean even just being out here in colorado like you know I, i've talked to so many people who you know have picked up photography or you know something to that kind of nature and that has brought them out to colorado yeah and i mean this was 74 it's a different time because uh charles actually had left his car at home in the state of virginia and he actually he planned a hitchhike where he was going mm -hmm. yeah and uh you know again much different time you know so do not try that now <laughs> but uh, i wouldn't recommend it yeah no no we, we by no means are recommending that so do not do it um, again, much different time, but, uh, you know, Charles was a keen photographer, you know, he loved it. That's kind of, it was kind of his thing, you know? So he was planning to visit all of the national parks to take photos, uh, but was an experience, you know, he was just learning how to, you know, kind of do his craft, you know, he was learning and trying to better it. Yeah. And he was driven by his passion of photography, but he wasn't a, an outdoorsman by any means. Right. So late January, uh, about the 8th. 1975 mccullar was in eugene oregon with some friends the plan was after this visit he was going to go on a short hitchhiking trip to crater lake national park to take some winter photos planning to come back to the friend's house two days later he told them that if he wasn't back by february 1st that they should call the authorities to report him missing which kind of weird but you know i guess in given the the nature of the time frame we'll, we'll just kind of go with it and he was hitchhiking right so it turned out that it was a good idea to give this information out. <laughs> Needless to say. So several people remember seeing him in the Diamond Lake area, but on January 30th of 1975, a park logger reported that he had given a, luck, a lift to Chuck to the entrance to Crater Lake Park. Given the heavy snow made his van unsuitable for the trip, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Oregon, uh, there's a lot of snow in the area around this time. But... Yeah. To just kind of give a little bit of uh, context into the area, Crater Lake is in South Central Oregon, 
and it it's partly fills a nearly 2100 foot deep caldera that was formed around 7,000, 7,700 years ago by the collapse of a volcano at Mount Masama. So there are no rivers that actually flow into this lake. The evaporation is, com is compensated by rain and snowfall at a rate that the amount is replaced around every 250 years. Regardless, you know, it's uh, in the summer, the weather's mild and dry, but in the winter, it's cold and it's the powerful influence of the Aleutian lows allow for very high snowfalls, averaging 505 inches of snow per year. You know, that's that's a lot. Yeah, that, that is that is a substantial amount of snow. So yeah. the snow there doesn't usually melt until mid-July, which is, I mean, you know, much like Colorado, too. I mean, we, we've got a lot of places that still have snow mid-July. I mean, you know, so it allows for substantial glaciers on adjacent mountains, you know, that sort of thing. Um, the average window for freezing temperatures is August 19th through July 7th. So, Which is like all year. Yeah, pretty much. So it seemed that Charles planned to hike Crater Lake along the North Road. So a heavy snowfall during the previous two weeks dropped over five feet of fresh snow during the course of this. So cross-country skiers reported that at the time the snow was soft and powdery, even with skis, they were sinking up to their waist. So th like, that just goes to show you that like cross-country skiers can literally snow on anything, except for this. Yeah. It was up to their waist. Like how how could they? I mean, I mean on me like that's probably about you know four a little over four feet. Yeah, that's definitely a lot of snow. And uh, as we said earlier, he's he was typically not an outdoorsman. He he just wanted to hone his craft. He wanted to take pictures. So Charles ultimately, you know, he he headed in the direction of all this snow. Right. So February first rolls around. You know, Chuck's friends have not heard from him. You know, so they actually follow through. They report him missing to the authorities, uh, much like he requested. So good on them so get it you know get it you know get it known where he you know where he was going where he was you know whatever so an extensive air and ground search of the northern section of the park was started but no clues as to his disappearance were uncovered so his father spent the whole summer camped at crater lake searching extensively for his son but to no avail there was no trace yeah you know and the conditions in the park they were poor at the time, obviously, extremely high snow drifts with all that snow that that had just blanketed the area before he showed up. But a year later, on October 13th in 1976, at the end of the season, two hikers from Texas, they took a wrong turn and ended up in a remote canyon along a, like a, a little used trail in the area of the park. So the two Texans had been hiking the Pacific Crest Trail when they mistakenly took an abandoned spur trail into a bog and they stumbled upon an old, dirty, ripped backpack in a place called uh, Bybee Creek. So the hikers actually draw a map of the area where they think they found the backpack and they placed a piece of clothing to mark the spot. So on October 14th, uh, a couple of rangers, they mounted on, on horse to search the area where these uh, hikers had marked it. And then around 1.30 p.m., they called in that they had found uh, Charles' remains scattered over and down the steep bank by the drainage, four miles from Lightning Springs and around 12 miles from the trailhead. And they quickly discovered you know, his Volkswagen key zippered in his pocket. So that's how they were able to determine so quickly that, that it was Charles. Mm -hmm. But the thing that makes this case so interesting that the skeletal remains that the rangers found they described them as bizarre yeah so what they found 
were foot bones in the socks. But Charles' jeans were empty, except for the broken off ends of his shin bones sticking up. Strangely, the jeans were unbuttoned, and the belt buckle left undone. The rest of him was gone, though, as if it had melted away. So think about that. So we've got his foot bones in the socks. We've got broken off shin bones sticking up, you know. We've got jeans unbuttoned. We've got a belt buckle undone. And no other, you know, no other remains. And you know the one of the park rangers uh, described it as if had Charles literally melted into his pants, and given that you know he was a very experienced ranger, it was a strange description coming from him nonetheless. You know he was just completely puzzled at what he saw there. It was just an empty pair of pants, you know, sitting on a log, and actually a broken fibula or a tibia was found in the pants. It had blood on it, and the pants were oddly placed. Underwear elastic was found, but it was degraded by the weather. While the pants were still largely unaffected by the weather. Um, yeah, so, so it was almost like, like they almost like they were planted there. Yeah, or, or frozen in time. Right. And you would go back to the Jared Adadero case, how his shoes appeared to be untouched by, by the weather. Oh. But anyway, under the jeans, the socks are found with the foot bones, obviously. They searched the whole area, but the boots were nowhere to be found. So, let's... That seems to be the case with a lot of the these disappearances that we cover. Yeah, and this next fact here, um, you know, I know that when we had kind of you know come across this, uh, I had I'd actually brought this to light, you know, to you, and and just kind of the 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 common denominator in a lot of these cases. So the crown of his skull was found about 12 feet away, but there was no sign of his shirt, coat, and more importantly the boots like you just mentioned right so that to me you know the, the crown of his skull you know being found 12 feet away you know we've covered a couple cases where you know the crown of this uh, the skull part of the skull is missing that to me is one super fucking eerie two why does that keep occurring i don't know but uh, it's strange because you know from the trailhead this was 12 miles and you know the the state that his uh, his jeans were the the shin bones the the bones in the sock it was just it's it's a weird case and the the remains found it's just completely bizarre but now I want to go back to the boots because you know this is 12 miles away from the trailhead there was a lot of snow on the ground at what point did Charles take off his boots and, you know, we've covered in the past, and I've, I've heard the theory before of paradoxical undressing. But if he indeed was in the late stages of hypothermia, and he would have taken his boots off, he wouldn't have gone very far in that state. You know, he wouldn't have gone very far without his boots. And right. mind you, they never found his boots. And let's not forget that animals don't carry boots away. You know, they're not interested in that. Right. So it just makes you wonder. But... Nonetheless, another factor that we have to add in there, you know, his camera equipment was nowhere to be seen. And there was no money in the pack or on the remains. So, you know, that puts a big question mark on that. Yeah, and I mean, you know, so, so that kind of leads me to kind of think, you know, was there foul play here? You know, you know, did somebody, you know, unfortunately, you know, kill him and, and steal his belongings? A lot of questions get posed here. Mm-hmm. 
Right. But just the fact that his remains were found so deep into this area and where the state that his pants were found in, you know, it looked like he had sit on the log and he had perished here. You know, did somebody place him there after killing him? I, I just don't know. Yeah, and it, honestly, it was almost like it was it was set up, you know, specifically how somebody wanted it. You know, sitting yeah. him, you know, sitting him up on a log and and you know, positioning, you know, the the found items in a, in a way that kind of make it look mysterious. You know, and again, yeah. you know, his camera and his and his cash was gone. You know, mm-hmm. so again, it, it really does, you know, in my opinion, kind of pose, you know, the 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 theory behind, you know foul play right but then going back to to october 18th the fbi and the state police delivered the remains to the coroner and it was determined that the skull had indicated no evidence of blunt force trauma and the official cause of death was ruled uh to be uh natural causes yeah but i think if, if there's one thing that we've learned in you know doing now six episodes of this podcast you know most of these cases are ruled as natural causes, you know. Yeah, the, the even death though there's being a lot determined of, as to be that. Yeah, considering the amount of evidence points away from it. Yeah. So I, again, I don't know how much of that I believe. You know, and I, I kind of am in, in in the sense here where, you know, the facts speak otherwise. You know, but we'll give it to them. You know. Yeah. Hey, you want to call that it was, natural causes? We don't believe you, but you know, we'll give it to you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, considering on the day that he disappeared, well, at least the day he took, you know, he embarked on the trail, there were seven and a half feet of new, of new snow on the ground. You know, given that he didn't have skis or snowshoes, how did he travel such a distance? In eight feet, eight feet of snow, fresh powder, it would have been impossible for even a snowmobile to get through. Yeah, and growing up with snowmobiles and everything like that, like, they do not operate well in that sort of condition, you know. The snow has to be, you know, pretty firmly packed for them to, you know, to operate to their to their full, you know, ability. Um, you know, and, and going back to, you know, the beginning of this case, you know, where we actually notated where he's not a very, you know, experienced woodsman. You know, no. he was not prepared for, you know, traveling in eight feet of, of fresh powder. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it just it just it brings that much more mystique to this. Right, and if there was foul play involved and somebody, you know, wanted to take his camera and his money, you know, that would indicate that this person would have had to also carry the distance in the snow to to prop uh, Charles' body where it was found. You know, so that puts another question mark on it. You know, a lot of people have speculated that Charles was hypothermic and he had paradoxical undressing, you know, explaining the fact that some of the items or clothing were missing due to extreme temperatures. You know, obviously, when people are freezing cold, they believe they're too hot and strip off clothing and maybe pull off their boots. My problem with that is that, like you said, when you're at the point of paradoxical undressing, you're at the late stages of hypothermia, meaning right. that you are almost near death. So if you take these items of clothing off, you're not getting very far without them. Yeah, and that's a very you know key point to make, you know, because again, you know. Once you're at the paradoxical undressing, you know, stage, you're going to die. Yeah. And it's going it's to just, be very soon. Yeah, it's medically impossible for you to get very far when you're at the point of a paradoxical undressing. But nonetheless, 
you know, moving on, there's also the potential explanation, you know, that the weirdo serial killer attacked Charles in the park, stole his camera and the cash. Maybe it was a guy who gave Chuck a lift to the park entrance. But, you know, being that it was the dead of winter dragging his body, the remoteness, took his shirt off and set him on the log, you know, and reasoning that the animals would destroy his body. It just, but 12 miles through roughly eight feet of snow, I just don't buy that theory. Yeah, and that, that that's a little far-fetched, you know, for me as well. I mean, you know, if this even if this guy had a snowmobile, again, we went through that. Eight feet of fresh powder. He's not dragging that with a snowmobile. You know, the snowmobile by itself isn't going to get through there. You know, so there's no way in hell, you know, he could drag this body, you know, to the remotest part, you know, with a snowmobile or even by hand. Yeah, it's just the fact that where his body was found just the circumstances that his uh, his remains were found and you know the camera wasn't there the money it's just there's a lot of questions in this case it's really unusual the family themselves they've stated that they don't believe that it was that it was natural causes they believe it was foul play and i mean i might tend to agree with them it's just my problem with that being is it's just the area that he was found you know if it was foul play this was a determined killer somebody who who went really deep into the wilderness and through thick, thick snow just to cover the the evidence yeah but it almost sounds you know it, it almost seems too good to be true just to you know just to slap on you know foul play and there's a serial killer running through you know crater lake national park you know because yeah. of the fact i mean you have to go through an extensive amount of work to one kill a man two drag the body you know somewhere you know that's inconspicuous to the point of it being 12 miles not to mention you're dragging it through eight feet of fresh powder then on top of that you know i mean typically you know speaking serial killers take some sort of trophy so or have some sort of you know i guess calling card if you will that they leave behind so if this guy left behind, you know, his body in a sense of, you know, that, that he was to be found with, you know, the foot bones in the socks, you know, the, the jeans and the, and the shin, the shin bones split off. Is that his calling card? Has that ever happened again? Because, I mean, serial killer does it time and time again in a very similar fashion, if not the same fashion, every time, if I'm not mistaken. Right, but I mean, if somebody wanted to get rid of him, you know, you could have tossed him in the water, you could have tried burying him, but... Just the fact that we're how far away his body was found where he would have had to drop him off. And, you know, and tossing aside the, the serial killer theory, you know, if Charles actually did make it all the way here, how would he have possibly made it there without the proper gear? You know, it just, it doesn't make sense how he got that far and why he was propped up on the log like he was, why his remains were found there, why it appeared like he had melted into his pants. Yeah, and that's probably the most troubling part of this case for me you know was the fact of how he was found you know so like basically like the whole upper part of his body you know wasn't found mm -hmm. all right i mean it's 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 a strange area and you know as i said earlier in the case of mount shasta you know the native americans the the people the klamath people who are indigenous to the area they hold crater lake sacred they see it as a crossroads between the spirit above called Skell and the spirit below called Lao. It's, it's a fiery and dark figure, basically uh, the devil. 
so it's it's pretty it's a pretty mysterious area yeah and and, means yeah i guess you just never know you know um but that is about all the time we have uh for both of these cases so again incredibly weird and kind of peculiar cases i think the second one was actually the, the weirdest one that we've covered so far yeah, I mean, if if you guys uh, have anything that we might have missed in these cases, I know personally, I go back and look into the cases we've already covered and realize I, I missed a, a detail here and there. You know, there's just so much information out there. If there's something in here that you that you notice we missed or, or you'd like us to look into, you know, let us know, you know, email us, uh, reach out on us uh, on social media. We're on YouTube as well. Yeah the wildly unexplained at gmail.com if you would like to shoot us an email uh, we'd love to hear from you, re- you know, regardless um, you know please you know for all of our Apple podcast uh, subscribers and listeners if you would please leave us a leave us a review tell us how we're doing um, you know because we do want to improve this podcast for you guys um, you know in the only way you know the only way we have to you know to basically work off of is you so leave us a review tell us how we're doing um you can follow us on twitter instagram uh we have a youtube channel that danny is crushing with the with some of these videos i mean he's doing an awesome job you know kind of editing and putting these videos together um so let us again let us know how we're doing yeah definitely and you know if you'd like to support the uh, the podcast and become a patreon subscriber you can do so there as well and you know you'll get access to our community discord and we actually just recorded another bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers. You know, it's it's a little extra for you guys that, that want to support us. Yeah, bonus content. You know, again, that includes, like Danny just mentioned, uh, bonus episodes where we kind of get into these cases a little further and, and kind of more so speculation or, you know, kind of theorize, you know, what we personally think happens, you know, in these cases and some other kind of weird facts to kind of bake, you know, back it up and all that good stuff. Plus we post links on there for further evidence that we have found. Um, so, you know, we actually are running a special on there now where you can sign up for $2 and 50 cents. So again, that gives you access to our discord. Uh, you have access to us personally on there as well. So you can kind of chat with us, chat with the community. Yeah. We're actually sitting in the discord channel right now where we record. So you'll get access to that. Yes, sir. But on that note, check it out. Uh, so I will catch you next episode. All right, guys, stay safe out there. Yes, sir, you as well.